Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Poetry. I am your host, Jen Fitzgerald. Today we have with us Kerry James Evans calling in from the great state of Florida to talk about his debut collection. Kerry served six years in the Army National Guard as a combat engineer, including one year of active duty at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, during Operation Noble Eagle. He earned a PhD in English from Florida State University and an MFA in creative writing from Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. His poems have been published in Agni, Beloit Poetry Journal, Narrative, New England Review, North American Review, Plowshares, Prairie Schooner, and many other journals. He is the author of Bangalore, Copper Canyon Press, 2013. Welcome, Carrie. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I would like to start off by getting to know a little more about you, and I imagine that there's a lot to know. Um, but I was hoping that I could get you to read a piece during this preliminary part of the interview. Could you read Canaan on page 64? Absolutely, I'd be happy to. Canaan. The river turns on itself. The tree retreats into its own shadow. It's from Theodore Rethke's The Far Field. Walloped between railroad ties and gravel, my brother and I shouldered burlapped rocks in a pit we thought the underworld, and we dumped those rocks in an onslaught of forgetting on the train tracks, while light caromed through a colonnade of idealized trees. But we claimed Canaan, borrowing from the gods our philosophies, the existential as reasonable as the grave. We were tracking adolescence across wilderness, seeking the impractical, the shepherd snug at harbor, eclipsed by the broadcast of a ham radio operation snaking through our walkie-talkies. To shortwave ourselves across space, we might have sustained transmission to other planets without risking a whipping at home via iron skillet or hickory switch. As sure as we walked, the interference channeling our bodies, the train shook loose the tracks, and our feet picked up quick, the belly of the beast breaking on the shore we called the living those tracks where we walked with fossilized rocks, wandering nothing more than Alabama with its thorny bushes and quicksand, its acres of red clay farmland lost to industry, carried on a train we could not derail. Radio waves pulsed through us like our blood, like the plows pulled by mules we knew so well from the stories of our parents, as oblivious to the coal cars as we were to the invisible world we knew as the radio what we might tune our ears to for a bit of goodwill preaching, a brazen loss of self, backsliding wolf of a man worshipping a whimsical cloud. It made sense then, as much as anything does to a couple of kids looking out at Canaan, proclaiming the promised land. Thank you so much. Um, I, I thought this poem would set a particular mood to our discussion on childhood and personal history. Um, could you speak a little bit about how it came into being? Um, I just, uh, I think I'd gone home to visit family and, uh, every time I go back, it seems to dredge up more memories and, uh, I'm driving past Solagent, 
moved around a lot in the South. Mm-hmm. After my, my father was in the Air Force, and then we moved back. And uh, I went to eight schools, K through 12. Wow. And uh, four of those were while we were living in Alabama and Mississippi. And lived in Soligent, Alabama for a while. And there was this railroad track uh, behind some cousins of mine. was behind their house. And my brother and I used to go out there with our cousins and... Uh, Just you know, play basically. Mm-hmm. So, where exactly were you born? I was born in Jasper, Alabama. Okay. Now, um, unfortunately, I do not know much about the geography of the state of Alabama. So, is that northern, southern, eastern, western? Uh, yes, it's northern. It's about um, sixty miles west of Birmingham. Mm, okay. North, and it's uh, like the foothills of uh, Appalachia. It's really beautiful, rolling hills, terrain. Yeah. Um, so what other places did you all move around to when your father was in the Air Force? Well, I was born in Jasper. and My dad was 18. My mother was 16. I was eager to come into the world. And, <laughs> um, he joined the Air Force. To, he wanted to make money. And they, they, they got married before I was born. I think my mother was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And uh, we moved to Nebraska lived there for four years, and then after that we moved to England, and we lived there for ten months, and then we moved to the Azores, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, lived there for a couple of years, then Washington, D.C., and my mother got uh, tired of moving around, so uh, we went south, we went back home. Um, geography is fate, especially for poets, and I'm grateful that you speak so candidly about the realities of your upbringing. It's something that I try to do as well. What made you choose to render this honestly? Well, it's, um, to me, communication is, is the, you know, I, I write poetry to communicate, um, and uh, I, I think most poets, a lot of poets do, um, to and the best way that I, I want to understand, you know, since I've grown up, I guess since I started going to college, started having questions about socioeconomic upbringing, you know, but my, like what it meant to be poor, mm-hmm. um, what it meant to move around, uh, like what what does Alabama, like what what does my home mean to me? And so I've spent. You know, the, the, I feel like the best way to do it, to get to the truth, is to go right at it. Try to. Absolutely. Um, and you do. A lot of the poems um, I found myself relating to in a way that I'm not accustomed to when I read poetry. Um, there's, there's some realities that you're willing to discuss that I hope that we can touch upon later. Um, first, I'd like to know a little bit about what made you join the service. Uh, I was poor. And I needed to pay for college. Uh, that's the honest answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't necessarily. I, I did care about you know, my community and all that, but um, I, yeah, it was it was to pay it was to pay for college. Mm-hmm. They offered uh, it was a way to make money, and so yeah, that, like a lot of kids, like a lot of the other, a lot of people who joined at the time that I joined. Before 9/11, especially, it was it was for college money. There were a lot of benefits involved. Yeah, um, I think that most people are still joining. Um, I think the recruiting centers have set themselves up, and 
the socioeconomic areas where people would be most likely to benefit from military service. Um, so I'm trying to get a time frame idea. I want to figure out who you are as a writer and who was the first writer that you connected to? Oh, yes. Um, first writer I fell in love with was um, Yusuf Komenyaka's mm-hmm. uh, book, Dian Kaidao. Awesome. And Rodney Jones's Apocalyptic Narrative. Um, both just hit me. Th- those were two books where I've read them side by side. I had a professor in college, um, Michael Burns, um, passed away a couple years ago. He gave me those two books and he said, uh, you, need to, you need to find out who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, 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 those are two, those are my two formative poets that I really fell in love with. And then in graduate school, I fell in love with Louise Glick and Frank Bedard and Carson, some poets that don't really seem like a good fit, but really, really, I love those poets as well. Mm-hmm. No, no, they're a perfect fit. I understand exactly where you're going. Um, so then you didn't really connect to poetry until college. Well, I, you know, it's funny. Um, I, didn't, I didn't in a real sense, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think every, I wrote poetry in high school and as a kid, I think, I think most people do um, at least when we're all young, I think it kind of gets gets beaten out of us in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, I didn't really know that people wrote poetry, um, in, you know, currently as did it. I, I didn't know about contemporary poetry really until college. That's where I was first exposed to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do. I did grow up in a family of storytellers. I mean, some great storytellers. I, I I still don't feel confident enough to tell stories around my family, <laughs> especially my my grandmother, um, my my father's mother. She is she's a wordsmith. She's amazing. Yeah, um, I I also have similar experiences. Um, I'm just going to keep referring to myself in this interview, if that's okay. But um, <laughs> no, as I was reading your book, I was you were saying so many of the things that that I am seeking to say as I move towards, you know, creating these collections of poetry. Um, and one of the first poets that I connected to was Morris Manning, who I am sure that you've read and the storyteller. I mean, he yeah. is the Appalachian storyteller. Absolutely. I actually have the good fortune of studying with him at uh, Sewanee this year. I'll, I'll be leaving in three days. Lucky. I'm so very, this is the first time I've gone to, to Sewanee. I'm very excited. And right. I'm, getting, I'm excited to meet, Morris too. He's he's a great great poet. I, I I totally agree. Every time somebody tells me that they're going to be around him, I just I have this urge to like sneak in a hug for me somehow. But that would be really awkward for you to do, so you don't have to do that. Um, okay, so you connected to these poets. Now, when did you decide that you yourself wanted to be a poet? Um, seriously, I it was during Fort Leonard Wood. Uh, my my time there. Mm-hmm. I, I spent a year guarding a gate at Fort Leonard, Missouri. I was supposed to go to Iraq. I trained for three months with my unit uh, to go to Iraq. And my orders were changed at the last minute and I ended up guarding a gate at Fort Leonard. With a unit, I was a tat. It's complicated. Um, anyway, um, while I was there, um, 
I wanted I wanted to put I wanted to start taking myself more seriously. I started thinking, you know, I can't. I was I wasn't doing very well in college before that. I wasn't taking my classes seriously, and uh, I had gotten a C in my first poetry workshop with mm-hmm. Marcus Cafania, and uh, I deserved that C. I didn't take it seriously. I, I wasn't trying. When I went to Fort Leonard Wood, I started realizing that, you know, let's 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 uh, let's put the hammer down. So I started taking night classes. I guarded the gate from. Uh, I got up at three in the morning. Went to the armory at four. Got to the uh, after the army, we went to the gate at five. I worked from the. I worked guarding the gate from five until uh, two, and we did PT till three, and then I had classes at five, and they would go until ten o'clock, um, at like three days a week, sometimes four days a week. And I would make up sleep on the weekend, mm-hmm. and that that instilled a real discipline in. You know, I didn't like guarding the gate. I wasn't a particularly good soldier, um, and it like I I took all these English courses. I took you know, I took old English. I took Chaucer, and, uh, and then I took some uh, some literature courses and some uh, some writing courses that were offered off post at a, at Drew University, mm-hmm. and it was an escape for me in a way from the military. Also, I started. I, I guess I grew up a lot during that time, and after that, I didn't. I, I didn't. I didn't turn back. I felt madly. I, you know, I just fell in love with it. Yeah, I, I had seen. You know, I, I of course don't have very much experience with the military, but when I think of these two together, um, you know, service and poetry, they seem like two extremes that are in conversation with one another. Whereas you have, they, they both enjoy form. Right, they both like to be regimented in some way, but poetry seems to have a much different objective for the, the body than the military does, and it just it really interested me in how you were able to reconcile those two things concurrently. Okay, so the first thing I do when I pick up a new book of poetry is I flip through it just to look at the different forms. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as far as um, the layout of the poem, um, but the, you know, obviously form comprises of much more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as meter, um, vowels and like vowel structures, phrasal units, um, syllabics. So for me, it's it's you know it's more about organic form. It, it, it's it's the it's the form that the poem wants to take or the so I don't really, I, I, you know, I can't impose anything on a poem. Obviously, I'm writing it, but the poem dictates the form always. Mm-hmm. Um, like some of the more narrative poems, um, like For the Pop Collar or uh, Elegy for the Kudzu Vine, um, they're in a they're in a in a bigger stanza. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas the you know like the Palm Night Volcano with couplets, it's it's more of a lyric kind of poem, so it's for me. It's it's listening listening to the to the poem, and that's that's been the hardest thing to learn. You know, it's it's it's, it's listening to the poems that yeah. you're trying to write. Absolutely. Um, well, you've mentioned for the pop collar, so would you read that for us on page fifty-eight? Sure. For the pop collar. 
Some asshole wearing cowboy boots and a t-shirt tells me my pop collar reminds him of country club pukes from his hometown, St. Louis, Missouri. A greasy stain on the back of an oil man sipping the Glenlivet in some clubhouse. The left breast embroidered logo and eye for the upper class. And this pop collar, it must signify a whiff of toilet rot trailing cedar baseboards from the bathroom door at the VFW hall where the commentary this is not the first time I've encountered a drunken local at a BFW hall. In Charlotte, I learned what a double tchotchke meant. Two polos standing at attention for Nixon, stacked one on top of the other, like the logo itself. A rider striking a white ball from a pony, one of four players. You'll say he's playing three, the most difficult position on the field, and he's just passed the ball to two, who scores a goal and that all of the players in this scene are wearing the same polo I'm wearing at this VFW hall on a Friday night. A polo with a popped collar, stiff with starch, a tuxedo-folded tip, with me, failing to mention the use of popping a collar. It keeps the sun off my neck, I tell my beer. But now I'm explaining fashion, style, to the bartender, who is the son of a veteran. We explore the structures of class. When does one decide to wear the collar popped? Is this a question of philosophy? We agree to go no further when he kindly asks me to leave until he discovers that I served six years. He offers to buy me a beer. I think of history, the origins of polo traceable to Iran as cavalry training for the Persian army, up to 100 riders per team. I invoke the bartering system of my European ancestors. I offer him a lecture on the necessity of language, and he asks, Language? I just don't like your collar. Why do you wear it like that? I don't answer him. Rather, I listen to 19th century British imperial officers practicing military maneuvers, riding those ponies, shod hooves galloping down the night street. Then I see my father, camouflaged collar weighed down by a maple leaf, He's trying to call from Kosovo. He's found the highest mountain. He's looking down at the village. He sounds out the words for village, ovo, selo. But this is a language he keeps failing to pronounce. My cell phone is ringing in his ear, and he's standing in the Balkans waiting for me to pick up. He's leaving my name to the wind. Thank you. This poem, um, the trajectory of this poem is surprising in one of the most beautiful ways that I've encountered recently. Sure. Um, you're welcome. Although W.E.B. Du Bois coined the term double consciousness to describe the way people of color have to navigate the world, I believe that some form of this exists when dealing with class and gender. Do you find that you often juggle at least two worlds worth of people in your life? Yes, no, and I mean, huh. you know, this this question is something that that I had hoped would lead us into a discussion that I anticipated having with you. Um, for myself, um, I come from a place that is entirely working class. I have an accent that you can't hear, but if you and I went to a bar after a few drinks, that accent would start sneaking out, and I would have to become hyper-aware of who I was around. And mm -hmm. it seemed as though you might relate to that experience. Certainly. I mean, uh, with my, yes, um, uh, I mean, 
being in a, being in graduate programs um, I'm around uh, educated people from uh, a myriad of different cultures, different uh, different class structures, and uh, all very educated people. And then going from that into going home, uh, where my mother um, has a has a GED, and uh, there's not a lot of education um, you know, within my family. My father did go to college. Um, my brother and sister have gone to college, um, which is which means a, which means a great deal to me personally. I I, I do understand it, and uh, every time I go home, I was in a barber shop um, not too long ago. My father was visiting. My sister was getting married, and my father was back from Afghanistan, and for the wedding, and we went to a barber shop to get our hair cut, and uh, the rhetoric. That you hear just in the barbershop, you know, the uh, just the the hateful rhetoric, uh, but but not just between you know one person. It's 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 among people, and it's an accepted kind of rhetoric, and it's complicated. Um, Do you know? Do I engage in this? If I do engage, how do I engage? If I come off, um, I can't. So I, I do I, I do understand it. I think I, 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 I don't know how I've, I don't know how to handle it yet. I'm still working on that. Um, yeah, I don't think that we'll ever know how to handle it. We're not supposed to. We're supposed to inhabit these different worlds where we encounter different people, and a survival mechanism is to be a chameleon. That's mm. that's it. I mean, that, that if you come up with something better, please, I'll give you my phone number. Call me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, would you read Waiting for Fire on page 16? Yes. Waiting for Fire. One. Mm. I, I stepped barefoot down cement, blood-bugged porch steps, blood-sucking. I stepped off home into cow pond muck. Tadpoles lurched between my toes. A catfish sliced my heel. A swallowtail tore through a willow. And while the dogs marched down the drive, a Confederate flag whipped its pole, an old wind working its will on this land. Two. I root a fence as if I might understand the rot. A junkyard drowned in a rebel yell. Fifty acres left to cousins and distant relatives. They stand in a pine thicket, shaking their rifles. Three. Sunday dinners after brimstone. Blasphemy in the bones. A backwoods dialect beats a horse with a stock of a Civil War musket. Look at these tongues beaten to sand. Four. Sling-bladed gravel roads. Shotgun signs. Praised his holy name at a cemetery. An unknown soldier. Mass grave. I hurl cow patties from pasture to pasture, spade a grave for Jack, my hunting dog. Watch me lay a blanket over his eyes, watch him wither beneath red clay. 6. I walked Highway 129 from Yampertown to Brilliant, stuffing Walmart bags with aluminum cans. I climbed the red banks of my childhood, and once, without thinking of leprosy, grabbed an armadillo by its tail, the hayfields dried and waiting. I looked at the foothills of Appalachia. 7. 
I waited for fire. 8. My grandfather would pour gasoline onto the leaves and let a match beneath his oaks. This before he greased bacon and fried the house to the ground. Two heart attacks, three strokes, halo screwed into his head and the intensive care unit, one-hour visits a day. Our conversations lost to cancer, and what do I remember? This man sipping orange juice from a plastic cup. I remember peeling back the lid and holding the straw. Nine. Antebellum double-wide barreled down the drives and halves, the insides wrapped plastic, stapled shut. Our home jacked up on cinder blocks. I dug a three-inch trench for the underpinning. I nailed blue rock to press board. Removed the piano in first. Half-pressed keys and lazy strings. The oak encasement my brother and I held. Strays pacing the tree line. Barking like a bulldozer. Leviathan of earth. Fumes breaking from a steel pipe and tin can lid. Ten. Gray sky. Ant antler rattle. Salt block and deer lick. Behind the blind. Kick back. Buck knife across the throat. Drag. Hang. Eleven. Water to my knees. Deep enough to two, two miles through mountain passes. Appalachian rock crashing beneath me. Vacation a short drive to Tennessee through Georgia sometimes. Foothills resting their moon cast. Blue backs. Vertebra stretching like knotted rope. My mother's favorite braid. And her childhood caught up in a mountain cabin while her father bought roasted peanuts from a roadside vendor selling produce. She remembers him peeling a peach with his bone-handled pocket knife that I lost last year, curling apple skins from their core. Strange seeds clipped ground. A garden moved quickly downstream, slipping into grooves of deer piss, undertow. The minnows followed the current back to where we settled. I follow the seeds as far as I can, but I lose them. I throw the knife into the river where it sinks into the gravel bed, and I can't get it back. It's buried in the river, and the seeds have emptied into the oceans or planted themselves somewhere along the bank. Well, where am I in all of this nostalgia? The river is a liar and will give you nothing. Thank you very much. That is an amazing poem. Absolutely amazing. Um, you like for your speakers to locate themselves geographically. Um, half, about halfway through the collection, I began to think of you as a poet of place. If you resist that, then please let me know. Um, how important is location for you? Is it a jumping-off point for your artistic process? Well, it grounds the poem, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and it gives the poem context. Mm -hmm. It's it, you know, different, uh, different, uh, different places invoke different things, different feelings. You know, I, I don't feel the same way uh, when I'm at the beach as I do you know, when, as in, in, in a bar built beneath a sex shop. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a completely different mindset. It's a diff it's, there's so many different things going on, um, different smells, different, different sights, you know, di different kinds of um, sensory things going on so I, I think those I think all of those things inform the poem and if you can create that context it, it can help give life to the poem I agree definitely 
Um, in many of your pieces, I'm struck by what I read as violence, but may very well just be reality. It got me thinking. Um, poetry often shields us from violence to draw our attention towards that which is inherently good and humane in people or the highest self. At the very least, poetry questions these ideas. Um, has this been your experience as well? But uh, there was, you know, the, you know, I see violence as part of. I mean, I turned on the. I was playing guitar the other day, trying to play, trying to learn how to play guitar. Mm -hmm. I set the guitar down yes, uh, two days ago. Turned on the television, and there's a special report about the Malaysian flight going down. Right. And it's, it's, you know, it's. Uh, last night, I'm pretty sure I heard gunshots outside the outside of our house. I think they were gunshots, or they were. Um, Fireworks, but scared the hell out of me. And it was something. Um, so there's violence is is it's a part of living. Um, we don't always focus on it uh, because obvious, for obvious reasons, um, it's not the most pleasant thing to focus on. But that doesn't mean that there's not it's not important that it, it, it's not a it, it's not a part of the poetic. Experience. I think. I think poetry is the great communicator. It has the ability to communicate violence just as much as tenderness or, or any kind of emotion or feeling, or whatever it is. I, I agree, and I was almost um, after I realized that the violence came as a surprise to me. I started to get upset that that it would be a surprise, because it's not a surprise to me in everyday life. But to have it in a poem, it didn't seem like it fit. But it does. It absolutely does. And I thank you for, for putting that in there. Um, would you read for the final poem, uh, Seven Chance of War Cry, on page 75? Yes. Seven Chance of War Cry. One. You nothing of a reader... This is the savage age of battleships and bombs, candlesticks and underground shelters, the radio address, flare, satellite plowing a cornfield, caught mouse and the dead ramparts we sing, the movement from doubt to inquisition. These are mornings, roosters eat eggs, ant colonies gasolined, tortured, the queen dead, her neck noosed and hanged. I am not your savior, I am not your king. Two, three men in a dissolved government walk into a bar, order three drinks and a shot apiece, ask the bartender, profit on a cliff, seeks water, tree, wind, and yet the notes keep that light, keep that supermarket rolling to the abyss, this trapped tile of bathroom soot, this rocky top cracked down its spine, this savage age, this day keeps moving. Three, hear that headboard slap this wall, Drop its studs. Hear these studs slap that woman. Slap that woman. Let that woman's cry be the Iraqi cry, the tribal cry, the ancient cry. Break your shovel on your mother. Pick up the axe and tear down the barn. Burn it. Leave the field of Mars for the poor fucks to bloody up. Drop the bomb. Pick it up. Apologize. Four. Bow before yourself after dinner. Bow before that chained dog, the dog that runs as far as the length allows, chaining, chaining, the dog chants, the dog cries. Five. 
poured whiskey like nails. Love was a red, red brothel smelling of perfume, musk. Men broke the bones of their children, thrust and sweat, thrust and cry. The brothel was German, the Nuremberg Wall. On crutches, I paid $50 for a blowjob. Call my wife. Tell her our marriage is lyrical. Order the buffalo wings in a Miller light. Tell me about the sacrifice fly in left field, the botched throw at home where you put to bed your children, who you give a teddy bear to die in their arms. Six. Not when you know the end. The children in fire hydrant popped open with a wrench. Look at all those hands and feet. Who will be the first to go? Let the mother speak first, holding a spatula. What's that? Let him play. Rusted water breaks the skin. They are lockjaw. They are innocence. Seven. If there is a heaven, I'd rather not see it. I'll burn with my brothers. This age has fallen. Cell phone call from 747. Shock and awe. Commercial for a razor and its four, five blades counting down before the rocket zips into space. Cap, Cape Canaveral, Cape Carnival, Cape Cod, and my mother-in-law swallows every pill she can find, like my mother. And I suppose I blast it into space, these half-truth lives, these lives dangling on the edge of Earth. We will all be driven back to the sea. Thank you. I think your handling of poems and plots is masterful. Um, could you talk a little bit about how you navigate that form if you move towards parts being in conversation with or subverting one another? Um, this poem came in this, this poem came this, this is the strangest of the poems. I, I wrote each section at different times. And I just kept coming back to, to, and then I wrote some in between. I, I don't know. It's about moving. It's about, um, I, I just want to undercut, I think in this poem especially, like seven chants, like each, need, each section needs to be its own type of chant. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to um, keep the surprise going and to keep it moving. And also, especially with so much violence in this poem. Um, I needed to, I, I, I don't know how I, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing to be honest with you. Well, that, that's good. That means that, like you said before, that the poem is, it's choosing its own form. It's organically finding its place. And that is, you know, that's an admirable way for a poem to come into the world, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so who, who are you reading now? I was reading uh, Frank Bedart's Metaphysical Dog this morning, mm-hmm. and uh, I've read uh, Mary Chivas' Incarnadine, Adrian Matika's The Big Smoke, so uh, that and uh, a lot of music books. That's right. So you're learning to play the acoustic guitar? Yes, I'm, I'm trying to. I went up to uh, the Wayne C. Henderson Music Festival okay. in uh, Virginia. It's a bluegrass festival that raises money for, uh, for kids in Appalachia nice. uh, for, to, so they can have music festivals. Wayne, Wayne Henderson, is a, uh, he's a luthier, and he builds uh, the most incredible acoustic guitars. And uh, I went up there with my friend James Kimbrell, and we just uh, we met uh, another friend, Jane Springer, and we 
just had a blast. The music was amazing, and I heard so many songs that I'd heard growing up, some old old bluegrass, mm. uh, you know, Gene Carter songs and that sort of thing. Um, I, had to, I, I, I just had to get a guitar when I got home, so I went, I went out and bought a, uh, not the, the best guitar, but I bought a Recording King Dirty 30s guitar. Mm. Uh, it's a dreadnought guitar. I have been playing it since I bought it about two weeks ago. That's awesome. Um, I went to the um, Bluegrass Festival in, in Gettysburg not that long ago, and um, I absolutely love bluegrass. I, I think that in one of my past lives, I lived in Appalachia. I mean, there's, there's no other way to explain how somebody from Staten Island could be so attached to Morris Manning and bluegrass, but yeah. here I am. Um, so, yeah, for your next book, when um, I'm going to have to get an interview with you again, and you're going to have to play for us. Is that a deal? <laughs> So, that's, a, that's a deal. Awesome. Um, so final question. What would you do if you couldn't write poetry? Hmm. That's a good question. I would probably... Hmm. Wow. That's, that's tough. Um, brew beer, even though I've been sober for six months. Um, okay. Maybe be, be a brewer. Yeah, microbrews are really cool. There's a, it's very big up here right now. Um, that's, that's noble. I mean, you could you could somehow make that artistic, I bet. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, well, Carrie, thank you so much for your time. I, I really enjoyed speaking with you today. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. This is Jen Fitzgerald for New Books and Poetry, reminding you to support all the arts, but especially poetry. Mm-hmm.